After a skydiving accident nearly robbed Rex Stephen Sykes of his life and caused him to spiral down in negativity for a couple of years, Rex locked himself in his apartment for over six weeks to sort things through and develop the confidence to face the world again, living happily and successfully. During those weeks of deep introspection and meditation, Sykes discovered the keys for transformation, which he's shared around the world ever since. He discusses this, this, discusses this in his book, it's hard to say, Life on Your Terms live the life you want. And he will also discuss that today on the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart, where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. Hello, Rex. Doug, Doug, it is so wonderful to see you and be with you again. It's nice to see you as well. And you look like you're on the set. Is that like a Western set there or something? (laughs) The background? Yeah, you know. (laughs) because <laughs> i know i know you are um, you are the amazing rex you are you do so much it's amazing and, and um among them you were an actor you've been in well you tell us i know you've been in a western because i've seen that on facebook fairly recently where you've been in a western well, i've been acting professionally since i was about 18 years old as oh, I didn't know that. yes yeah, skills. Uh, and I act and I, I produce, I recently uh, produced a movie called The Phenomenon, which is about UFOs and whether it's covered up or not. I was co-producers nice. on that. Um, I'm in this movie called Shooting Star that came out recently. It's on, right now it's on Tubby and Roku and, and different places you can find it. Um, but it came out, I don't know when they, what the year release is. We, we did it pre-COVID and it just, it just came out. And um, it might be 2019, it might be 2022. I have no idea. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I act and I produce. Well, how about that? I usually play the killer, the druggist, drug addict, the rapist, or something. Oh, typecasting, then basically. Well, it is. And yeah. now that I'm older, I play alcoholics and priests. So I, you know, and, and trans- <laughs> or alcoholic priests, as the case yeah. may be. Yeah. Who are also drug addicts and rapists and killers and um, complex characters, you might just say. Well, and and to think that I thought you were an NLP trainer. It's, it's... <laughs> yeah, well, you know. So this is the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. What the heck are you doing here, Rex? <laughs> I'm trying to learn essential skills. <laughs> and where, where better to learn than from you? Yeah, well, that's a very good point. So you are a professional actor since you're 18, and that's been a couple of years. So um, where along that spectrum... Did you come across this NLP stuff? Oh, I was about 24, 25, somewhere in there. Okay. I had a crisis. I write about it in the book, Life on Your Terms. Uh, one of many. I mean, you know, it's just the one I wrote about, but it was, the, it was the precipitating event that got me involved in a lot of this. From the time I was a child, I wanted to be a mystic and an actor, the two things I seemed to have been able to accomplish in my life. And... Um, a mystic. So, and I got into hypnosis when I was 11. My dentist was a hypnotist. My father introduced me to a stage hypnotist. And so I started practicing. I actually started teaching hypnosis, you know, as a teenager to, to you know, 
like YMCA classes and things like that. Right. And um, but when I was 25, I had this crisis that I write about the sky skydiving accident, and it wasn't the accident; it was the aftermath that was the problem. And uh, I locked myself in my room at, at after a period of time for well over six weeks to to try and sort things out and figure out what was going wrong in my life. And because I had a background in hypnosis and meditation and law of attraction, medit you know, I've been reading Napoleon Hills every day since I was a kid too. Um, I, I just used everything I could to try and get my life back together. And, wow. and it wasn't working real well. And then I, I, I hit on something that did make a huge difference. And, um, and I realized I was just asking myself the wrong questions. I was saying, why did this happen to me? Why does life suck? How come nothing ever works out? Why did I do this? How did this happen? Why, why does there's a girl that left, you know, how did I lose my career? I really, I didn't want to, at, at about three weeks into it, I realized I don't want to know those questions. Right. What, what the heck do I want to know that about? I want to know how can I get my life back? How soon can I feel better? In what ways can I discover confidence? And I, and I, I, I discovered for myself that life was really about setting a direction, which direction. Wow. That so, is, that's like totally NLP right there. So you sort of invented NLP rather than. <laughs> you know, my acting coach actually knew more about NLP. And I started with her in 74. Um, and and we talk about, hey, you, you know, if you're looking up to get your line, you're seeing your lines, you know, right. all sorts of stuff. She, she say, stop the eye movements because on camera. It's 74? 1974. Yeah, I studied with her from 74 to 84. And we remained oh. friends to the end of her life. Her name was Lillian Chauvin. She was from France. She was a brilliant, wonderful, incredible person. And, 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 you know, Napoleon Hill, here's the other thing is if you look back into the history, almost all of NLP is in, uh, in so many different places. It's in the work of Hill and Robert Collier and, in, well, in, I mean, the, the notion of modeling, you know, comes from many years before NLP was ever invented. So when I got to, and, and when I got to, um, Around 1980 is when I did 79, 80, 79, I read Frogs and the Princess, I think it was. In 1980, I started doing workshops in NLP, and I also moved to a commune, and, and, and we were practicing NLP, going to workshops with NLP and training and things like that, and coming back and sharing it with each other. And we had a university, so. <laughs> Wait a second now. You had, you had an NLP commune? There was a commune that you No, no, no. no. It, was the, it was the Rajneesh commune in Oregon back in 1980, between 80 but and... But you did NLP seminars from, via Rajneesh? It was actually 81 when, when they used it. Yeah, well, well, the commune was comprised of therapists and, and like myself and everybody else, uh, and, and literally some of the most important therapists around the world who'd chosen to take sannyas and leave their everyday life of, you know, working in, in wherever they were and moved to either Pune, India, or to ultimately Rajneesh from Oregon. And so we had a collective of just incredible, I, I mean, I've done every kind of imaginal kind of therapy and body work and, and uh, energy practice that you can, you can imagine in the, in the four wow. or five years that we were there. And so NLP was part of that because we would, I, we would come and go all the time and go to workshops and go out and come back and introduce things. And it was, wow, it was amazing. amazing. It's an amazing journey. And who were you taking NLP workshops from? Well, whoever they were at the early time. I mean, you know, I, I don't remember all the people at that time. Well, you remember some. Bandler, I mean, Grinder? Huh? Bandler, Grinder? Yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, Bandler. I, and then, I, you know, I worked with Richard for a long time. but Or we presented programs together and did DHE together and stuff like that. But but uh, in the early days, a lot of them were unsung heroes. You know, we learned from other people. And then... And, and or study with master practitioners or things like that. I mean, there was just yeah. a whole bunch of where I first learned was was not 
I didn't go to an official training. I learned from all these other collectives and then said, you know, I think I want to do this. I want to do this training. Wow. How fascinating. Yeah. Wow. 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 I had no idea about that stuff. I'm so glad. And, I then, asked. and, then, I, and then I did work for, uh, I was a trainer for, you know, at that time there was a society and there was NANALP and there was all sorts of political stuff. And so I was a yeah. trainer for both actually, you know, and, and that created no end of interest. And, and you're still alive to talk about it. That's pretty impressive. It, that That is probably the most impressive part of it. <laughs> wow. That's so, it's so very interesting. I mean, I, I, um, I never even heard of NLP till like the mid eighties. Well, I thought I was an early adapter. The mid eighties is when it started to really kind of catch on, you know, and, and uh, even for me, but I mean, in the, in the mid eighties, I was, I was teaching seminars already. I, I started presenting NLP. I ran a meditation center off of a ranch as well. And so I would present NLP principles and practices and, and hypnosis principles, practice and meditation. And by the mid eighties, it, it was pretty, pretty well locked in. And, and then, and then, you know, at that time too, you know, practitioner, a lot of practitioners were a month long. Yeah, well, I know, I know, I know. Mine was 15 days. I thought it was pretty long, but yeah. uh, short, uh, those comparisons. Um, golly, golly, golly. It's so interesting. And um, one thing you said, you know, I, I also was a practitioner, a follower of a, of a guru back in the, in the late, 70s and and early 80s um guru maharaji was his name oh sure sure um but i had no idea was he a young child yeah that he was like 14 or something at the time yeah i remember yeah. him yeah i was in 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 college i was i met some uh premies 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 anyway anyway it was it was good it was a good time it was actually a really good learning um to, to learn to meditate like that i i think i think you know in, in in light of everything i've ever done my my spiritual journey you know i i fell in love with rajneesh who's now known as osho um right. and people always ask well did they ask you to give your money or your soul or your, you know anything and nobody ever asked me for a time i mean hmm. i was never asked to do anything, never told to do anything it was it's like your relationship with a guru is your relationship you know and, and that's how I always thought about it. But I had spent time in, in South Fallsburg with Muktananda for three Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah not far months. from here. And Sachidananda, who is a new, I think, resident in New York, I spent time with him. Krishnamurti, yeah. I, I would spend time in Ojai with him when he was there. So, oh, okay. you know, but, but I fell in love with Osho and uh, and to this day, uh, you know. Oh, it's beautiful teachings. It really is beautiful teaching. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, used, I went to South Fallsburg and, and uh, chanted with Guruma and you know Gurumai. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. there was Mukti and and Ma, and uh, Ma, what was her name before she changed it? Uh, she Ananda. Yeah, but so, I mean, and they were they were they had not yet. I mean, Muktananda was still alive and hadn't taken yeah. things over yet. You know, changed right. things, and, and yeah. they, they thought it would go to the guy, the boy, but it went to multi, yeah. multi, multi, multi. You know, and she became Gurumai. Right. Yeah. 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 And wow. while I was there, Marsha Mason, the actress, and Anthony Zerby were there at, for a time, you know, I mean, so I was like, there's actors here, there's, there's yeah. everybody from every walk of life, and you spent time there, it was very austere in some ways. I mean, you Yeah, know. I did, I spent some time in South Fallsburg, and she also did some, um, I don't know, satsangs in Manhattan at the Manhattan Center, which coincidentally was the same venue where I first learned NLP from Tony Robbins back in 85. Oh, wow. Wow. Manhattan Center on, on 34th Street in Manhattan. Wow, that's cool. Well, cool. well, Osho had 
had centers in Laguna and Westwood, California. So that was always cool. And moved in on to, had a big tent revival or something on the beach in Santa Monica for a long time. And then they had a, they had a center in, in uh, Santa Monica. We would go there for, did you, were you told, and nobody's going to appreciate this, but you, you might, when I was first going there, it was 1980, uh, yeah. 81, I went to, I went to Muktananda first, and then I went to the ranch. And uh, so I was in Manhattan. I was living in Manhattan, actually at Larry David's apartment. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> yeah, a friend of mine, Chris, and Larry swapped apartments. Larry took his Brentwood apartment. Chris took his New York apartment. Nice. And, and all, but all the people from Seinfeld, the characters that later became one of the writers, uh, um, and uh, and and uh, uh, Kramer, Kenny Kramer lived there. Oh and, my God! What and so fitting in Chris's. Chris was a drummer, and you know he had a soundproof thing built in his apartment, and everything. And we'd be in his apartment, and and the door would come swing and open, and and and. A guy named Jimmy would come sliding in like Kramer and go, oh, come, 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 come. And we'd run out and we'd follow him down the hallway to his apartment where he, he was just a writer. He wanted to write screenplays and comedy. And so we would all sit over his head and look at the typewriter of what he had written and then go back. And Kenny Kramer lived at the opposite end. And Kenny was just a, a person. I mean, he, you know, but he ended up with a namesake on the show. Jimmy was most like him. On the show. <laughs> and, uh, but I went oh, to South Pulsberg, and as I was going, a friend of mine who had, who had been there said, you're going to hate breakfast, but you'll love everything else. <laughs> and breakfast was sour cereal. And I loved the sour cereal, and I actually hated everything else. <laughs> well, there you go. It's, it's all a matter of taste. Hey, let's talk a little bit more about NLP and stuff, because this is sure. the uh, coaching. <laughs> we can oh, yeah, yeah. Continue this well, I understand that this is life, and we're sharing moments, and we're laughing, and we're having a good time, and I can't think of a better way to begin a coaching session than to begin with some laughter. And so that's really true. Really ultimately true. And, and, and um, but I did want to ask you what, how do you, how do you see the connection between these things, between NLP and coaching and, and spirituality and meditations and that sort of thing? It's kind of all the same thing. It's like language, but different languages. Okay. So it doesn't, it, you know, um, they all have their own unique benefits, their own unique problems, their own unique offerings. And, uh, and they all uh, address, you know, whatever whatever the focus is. So, meditation to me is about letting go and and releasing and allowing. And uh, NLP or the law of attraction tends to be about making adjustments, but that doesn't mean you can't do it in the state of let go or in release. So there's you know there's ways that these things work together, depending yeah. on the facilitator, you know, or, and or who's practicing it. You know, it's it's how you blend it. It's kind of like some people like their food all separate on a plate and they eat one food at a time. And other people, you know, put it in the like dinner at the at the commune, uh, commune. They just blend the lunch, you know, and then you and you eat it. So, um, it it's it's all of value, and then it's just a matter of the path that people choose. Um, I think that the main thing that I would like to see more of is benevolent, compassionate uh, facilitators of change who aren't so much into, you know, you have to, my philosophy is you have to be it to do it, to have it. I mean, and I'm not the only one, obviously, but when you are it, when it arises from you, then you naturally do what you need to do in order to get what you want to have. And so many presenters of self-help out there 
you know, put themselves in the place of saying, you know, if you want a car, you want a house, you want the jewelry, you want the watch, you want the girl, you want the guy, you want this, you want that, then you have to do this stuff and do this a lot and sacrifice and work really hard and give up your family and your free time and your leisure, whatever, so that you can be important, so you can be the kind of person who owns that, so you can have power and have money. And I, and I think it's absolutely the other way around. Mm-hmm. And so the more that people uh, approach this from a, a release, a let go and allow, and, and this or something better, you know, is possible, then, then how they get there, you know, whether they use a, a ladder or an elevator, doesn't really make much difference, it's, you know, because they're doing it. And so NLP and hypnosis and meditation and uh, tapping, I mean, all these different kinds of things that are out there um, are, are, are of great value. They wow. can also, just, just so you know, they can also be stepping stones as well as kind of blocks for people like uh, meaning that a person can get entrenched and go, this is the only way that I know how to do something. And there are many ways. It's like all roads lead to Rome. It's just, which one do you want to take to get there? Yeah. You know, I've, I've looked for Rome and, and unfortunately I live in New York state. So the Rome that it led to is the Rome, New York and <laughs> a little anticlimactic. So well, Rome, Wisconsin is an intersection. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you and I also have something else in common. We both studied at one point or another with Dave Dobson. Yeah. Few few people have heard of these days, but um, he was he was quite a guy. I was lucky in the, about the mid-80s when that happened, and, and Dave was a, a wonderful guy. And I, I don't remember how soon I saw him before he passed, but uh, we had a, a dinner or something in, in Illinois or, or somewhere. And, and what an amazing man and the unsung hero in neurolinguistic programming. Many of the stories that other people have co-opted were Dave's stories. So tell us, tell us a little bit about that. Tell us a little bit about that because, you know, not too many people know him. He, he had a, a funny quirk about not wanting people to steal his stuff or whatever. So he wrote a book, but he never published it. You know, it's really hard to get any sort of material of his stuff. Um, so tell us, tell us your, He's the unsung hero of NLP, like what? What? Uh, well, I mean, what, it, it, my understanding of it from him, you know, was that he, he did all the burn stuff. You know, he worked in the burn unit. He did yeah. traditional hypnosis as well as his own innovation stuff. And then then these stories come out or like when so-and-so would say, well, when I was in the burn unit, they weren't. <laughs> that was yeah. Dave's story. In the, in, 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 I, I hope you appreciate this, but you you will recall, I'm sure, that in the early days of NLP, uh, anybody's story was fair game because they could oh, yeah. a teaching experience. Or so if if you, for example, were at the beach and something happened and you said, I'm at the beach, so-and-so may have said, well, when I was at the beach, I might say, well, when I was at the beach, you know, and we just made the story our own instead of saying, well, when Doug was at the beach, this happened. Right. You know, so, But that got lost, and some people got all the stories attributed to them as if they did everything. And no one did anything else. And Dave is one of those people who had all these incredible stories and experiences yeah. that he, he he that he brought to the field. And then nobody, maybe for that very reason, nobody nobody said, "Oh, Dave, you know, Dave is an important piece." They got Milton, they got Virginia, they kind of say Fritz Perls, but Dave was just lost. Yeah, yeah, and and Frank Fairley, Let's not forget about him. He also Frank, would... yeah, exactly. well, Frank got a little bit of attention in the early days, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Frank was from Wisconsin. I know he was not far for, for from me, and I and I and I never actually met Frank. Oh no, he is great. Not, not that I'm aware of, and uh, and when I found out he was in Wisconsin, I was like, I should do something, <laughs> about that. and then I never did. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah, it's, it's, you have an amazing history. You are, as people are probably picking up, in Wisconsin. Um, and you also have a place in Hollywood, or L.A. at least, right? You've done, done a lot of work there. Tell us a little bit about more about Dave. What, what did you learn from him that you then started to use in your own training and stuff? Because you're, you're known for really masterful communication. And I think Dave, you know, his other than conscious communication is OTCC um, is really what it's about. Definitely that. I mean, definitely he, he, he was the, the idea of communicating with aspects of another person was was very different from anything that I'd gotten from neurolinguistic programming or anything else. You know, the acknowledgement, the rapport that you could create with with another uh, truly, truly uh, a phenomenal and remarkable uh, piece of learning that yeah. even today, I don't think many people see it or it. I, you know, I don't consciously present it today. I did earlier, you know, but I, I haven't in, in, in really in years. Um, one is because lately everything's online is a lot different kind of experience in doing yeah, it. For sure. Yeah. Um, the other, I think was the, the idea, and I don't know whether it was his original idea or not, it's the milking stool, the idea of balance, you know, and balancing out the, uh, you know, the, the systems, the sensory systems are trying to be congruent in each system, which right. I don't, I adopted that for a long time. And then I kind of went, Maybe, you know, I mean, I, I, there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong. You know, I, I want to make sure that I, I think it's wonderful, but I, I don't know that it's absolutely necessary. But any time that you can create a, a more harmonious, aligned, congruent experience for yourself with your own self, um, you know, better. And Dave, Dave talked about that. Everybody, it seemed like the early days of NLP, people were so interested in doing things and having people make changes and, and trying these approaches and making you know, what technique does this and what technique, and Dave just kind of went, the human being is phenomenal and, and beyond anything that we know, and there's ways to communicate with it. You need a good relationship with yourself and then you can communicate better with other people. I mean, that's my experience. And, and he was a uh, quite a rascal in how he presented it. He was, he was indeed a, a rascal is a good, good term for Dave. Yeah. It was a bit of, bit of a curmudgeon, but. Um, I'm trying to pinch. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's funny because you know, some of the stories that Dave told, and I'll try to tell the story without mentioning any names, but um, he was he told us once in class at his class, a fun shop that I took with Dave, that he was working with um, some of the early giants of the NLP world, whose names I will not mention. And um, he had, he had told some stories about his working like at the burn unit and that sort of thing. And, um, and then later he was listening to somebody else, one of those giants of the NLP world, um, telling the same story and as if he had done those things. And people were going, like, oh, wow, it's amazing. And listening to the story as if said person had done those things. And, and Dave was good at... Um, expressing anger. I don't know if you remember that about Dave. <laughs> he, was, he, he, was, he, was, he was good at that. He had a real facility for expressing anger. So um, the way he told the story is that he went over to um, said person and said, God damn it, said person, if you want some experience, go get some. And uh, so that is why in the 90s, I did. I went to a hospital in New York City and I didn't work in a burn unit. I worked in a, a cardiothoracic unit where I did pre-surgical hypnosis for patients. Beautiful. 
Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And and he's right. There's nothing like experience. You know, stories stories are the next best thing, or maybe hypnosis is the next best thing, and then stories the next best thing, or both. But experience, eh, it's different. Well, I can't I can't disagree with any of that. It, there's no shortage of experience. People always talk like the law of attraction, the secret. It's think and grow rich, and and I love that. And then people say, well, you got to take action. I'm like, or that the secret to the secret of thinking grow rich is action. And I go, no, action is always the next step. If you want a glass of water, you either have to ask for it, or you have to get up and get it. You always have to take some action, but it is based on the thoughts that you're thinking. There you go. And I'll join you. <laughs> and um, so the point is there's no shortage or no excuse for not getting experience or applying what you learn. Because if you don't apply it, it's completely meaningless. It becomes a story that you might tell. And sadly, well, back when I created Idea Seminars, when I founded Idea Seminars, um, and for many years I worked with Richard. And um, But uh, when the internet started, there was so much myth and so much misinformation and so many people who had never taken a practitioner, people who I knew today who still have never taken a practitioner course, who call themselves NLP uh, trainers, master trainers, practitioners, master practitioners, uh, and they've never stepped inside a program or even listened to an audio program or gotten my home study. out of here. No, no, there are many of them. Hmm. So I kind of made it my mission, whether it was a law of attraction, meditation, hypnosis, NLP, whatever I could to demythify it as much as possible without having to name names. I mean, you know, because it's not about, you know, taking someone down. It's about building other people up and, and trying to provide them a pathway that they can move in successfully. You know, there are people in the world who actually put hurdles down on a track and run around and try and jump over them in order to, to win an, a gold medal. So, you know, obstacles in life aren't things to be avoided. They're things to be, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, it sounds like from your book that some of the obstacles that life threw at you became very important for you. You know, I it, it, it Steve Jobs said it right, or I think it was Steve Jobs who said you can't connect the dots forward, but you can backward. Everything in my, I have absolutely no regrets. I mean, there are things that you know, if on a, on a, that I, at one time I said I wish this had never happened, or while I was going through it, I was just horrified by. It. I've I've since learned and embraced that everything, and and while it's a trite aphorism, <clears throat> it doesn't have to be that things happen for you, not to you. And whether they do or not, it's it's as Victor Frankl, you know, man's search for meaning. We are meaning makers and time binders. And so how we view things and, and we're egocentric, ethnocentric, chronocentric. I mean, we're all these things. So we 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 extract from it. So anything and everything that's ever happened to me in my life has been value, including whatever I'm going through today. And and what I try and train people to do is that if I said, what's your name? You say Doug, right? And if I said, are you a man or a woman? You'd probably say man. If I said, how tall are you? You'd say, I'm this tall. If I said, uh, where are you right now? You'd say, I'm right here, or I'm in New York or whatever. You know, you know that it's at the tip of your brain. It's it's, mm -hmm. it's in your DNA. You don't have to go, oh, I'm yeah. who am, right? That's how, when, when bad things happen, if you can go, wow, an adventure appears. And I'm so grateful for this. If you can do that like you do with your name, now you're in top of things. Now you're changing. Now you're now you're being able to to live life well because if you have to struggle through it, you're in that conscious, competent phase, which is fine. It's all the learning stuff. It's where we talk ourselves through it. It's where we have a foot on the dock and a foot on the boat, and we're not really getting anywhere. And then somehow something changes, and we either disavow it or hate it, or you know, go, oh my God, I survived it, 
or we go, wow, all of this has been truly part of an incredible journey. Yeah. Like, your dog seems very happy right now. She's yeah. liking to scratch the rug carpet for some reason. Hey, Bailey. Oh. <laughs> I thought she was chewing on a bone. No, no, no. She's like clawing at the carpet. Um, I got. I am so blessed to have the two most incredible dogs in the world. They are just gorgeous. Nice. Oh my God, what companions! Uh, and smart and kind and loving. But uh, what I was going to say was, um, I don't remember. <laughs> you come to me. It reminds me of a story. And the value of a pattern interrupt. <laughs> I remember Dave Dobson saying that there are two things that happen to you in life when you get older. Uh, one is that your memory starts to go. What? <laughs> one, one of them is that your memory starts to go. <laughs> and the other one is, um, other one is, um, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Good old day. Um, but we were talking about, you know, things that happen. Um, I always say it's dog shit or diamonds. You know, you have a choice. And it's because uh, based on my experience in that, in my apartment, it was about direction. Do I want to choose dog shit? Do I want to choose diamonds? And every moment of the day of, of every moment of my life, I have, I have um, the choice. And I remembered what I was going to say when I was a child, and this is a common experience for many, many people. Parents would take us on a road trip. I would lie down on the floor in the back of the car and go, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we? And even in my early days of traveling and career and things, when I'd be on a plane all the time, I hated to travel. I hated to get there. It was okay for me to get there and be there, but I didn't want to get there. I didn't want to check into a hotel. I didn't want to take a cab. I didn't want to be on a plane. I didn't want to do any. I didn't want to pack. I didn't want to unpack. I just wanted to be there, you know, teleport. What I've learned is, is that there's no substitute for the journey. The destination, you always have a great destination that you want to accomplish, you know, in your life, but you may or may not get there during this lifetime. Hmm. How you journey is how, is, is what's most important. Because hmm. I mean, I, you know, you, everybody dies in the middle of something, right? They, the very few people get to complete what they're doing. And, and so let's make the moments magical, miraculous, magnificent, and memorable and celebrate everything. Because if you consider something a problem, it's a problem. If you consider something a blessing, it can be a blessing. And it's all how you look at it. And that's the value of what I've learned from meditation and NLP and hypnosis and Dobson and, and all these incredible people and Napoleon Hill and the law of attraction and, and Muktananda and Satchitananda and Buddha, and, you know, I mean, Osho, is, is that there's no substitute for here and now. Beautiful. Yeah. My friend Dan Millman teaches that all the time. In fact, he's got a little clock that says, you know, now, 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 now. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, people people fail to realize that in, they, there is no past and there is no present. I mean, energy is equally distributed here now, then and there, but time is a human concept. There's no time with Oh, yeah. Right? I know. I, I was teaching yesterday in my NLP class, I was teaching a timeline. And they said, you know, this is all made up, right? There's, this is all made up. We invented time. Human beings invented time. Yeah. And it's, we can do with it what we want. But no, it's always, it, now it's always here. Where are you? Here. Where, what time is it? Now. Always. No matter where you go, there you are. Well, and that's, and that's very beautiful. And I forget, I read a book back in the 70s. Two things really kind of changed my life uh, in terms of just accidental articles. I'll mention those in a second. But, you know, you know people... I always tell people, if if you drag around your past, your hurts and all that stuff, it's like if you wore every single piece of clothing hmm. you've ever had in your life, you wouldn't be able to move right now. All right. 
And yet people do that. They, they And sometimes they're proud of it. You have no idea what I suffered through or how bad I, I oh mean, they, they don't want it. They don't like it, but they're familiar with the pain and the discomfort. And even though, and it's their comfort zone. And so they don't leave it even though they suffer in it. And that's truly yeah. sad. But in the past, when they were going through whatever it was, they weren't going through that in the past. They were going through that in the present. Hmm. And the same thing will be true when you get to your future. That future won't be in your future. It will be the present moment. So two things I read. The one was somebody said, how do I live in the present? I wish I could remember the source, but they said, how do I live in the present? You know, if I have a meeting, I know I have a meeting in the future. They go, well, you plan your meeting now. And when you're in the meeting, you're in the now. So don't worry about it. You're always going to be in the now. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, okay. So I can plan for the future in the moment, knowing that that's what I'm doing, but I'm enjoying this moment. Okay. The other thing was a, 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 a magazine from Leonard Orr, who was the founder of the, one of the founders of the immortal movement kind of thing. Yep. And I found it and I tossed it in a drawer. I went, oh, this is bullshit. And I threw it in a drawer. And when I was moving, I pulled it out and I, and I happened to kind of flip through it and I read it and I went, the one thing I've remembered to this day, and I remember very little else, is he said, some people fall out of an airplane and get up and walk away. There they survive. I actually had a girlfriend who did that. Fell like from a mile up and lived. Oh my God, really? <laughs> oh yeah, and lived and not and didn't kill herself. I mean, didn't break everything and bone her body. It was amazing. Right. Shoot didn't right. open. And you know how I found out about it? I was walking through the living room and it was on hard copy. <laughs> and and they mentioned this name and I went, what? She was a girl that, you know, we spent a lot of time together at one time, and uh, and yeah, she 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 had. And she had never mentioned to you that, oh, by the way, I fell in a mile. Well, no, she, this was afterwards. I was I was married at this time. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So, so this was afterwards, but I was like, holy crap. Right? But he said, some people fall out of an airplane and live, and other people trip over the carpet in their living room and die. Yeah, that's I have a question for you. What is a good height to die from? <laughs> and I was like, you know, because it's all about our beliefs. Uh-huh. And so really what my work has been about for – 40 years has been about the placebo. I got into the whole notion of attitude and the placebo and belief at the time and, and how our beliefs shape and what we see in the world. So, and that's what the book is about is how we change these things or embrace these so that if you do consider something a problem, that's as much a placebo effect as if you took a placebo, you know, and, and by the way, it's the placebo, you know, this, but the placebo effect is not the, the element, the inert little pill or whatever it is, or the amulet. It is an effect that says, you can't ever divorce the placebo effect from anything. So whether you're doing an NLP technique, a hypnosis technique, or, or medical technique or whatever, your attitude toward it determines a lot of the outcome. And I, I stumbled onto this stuff with the study. You know, I mean, there was Bernie Siegel and Norman Cousins. I mean, all these people. But um, Travis Air Force Base is one of the studies I love to, to, to quote, did a study on 157 cancer patients and and determined after the study that attitude toward the treatment was a greater predictor of the success of the treatment than anything else. So it meant that if you decided that this was going to work, it was more likely to work than it. And so now we know there's placebo and no placebo. And, and do you know that I, somebody wrote a book and in it I'm criticized because I said back in the nineties, I said, our goal or in the eighties, I said, our goal is to try and make the placebo effect conscious so that we can use the placebo effect deliberately knowing that knowing that we are creating good thoughts and good beliefs and good attitude and they went oh this is such bullshit you know and i'm like okay uh, you, you know you missed the point but okay 
Yeah, because that's, you know, it's funny because that's in a sense exactly what we were doing during the pre-surgical work with the patients at the hospital. We were saying, and this 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 is perfect. You're in the right place doing the right thing. This is going to be great for you. And that's large part of what the hypnosis was about. And it worked. When we yeah. first started this, just uh, as an aside, this was whole Columbia Presbyterian's uh, complementary care center was was wow. under the auspices of this guy named Dr. Oz. Um, back in the 90s, he was a surgeon and unknown to people except because he was a great surgeon. And he was. He was a great surgeon and probably still is. Um, but, you know, he was interested in what he and others, he wasn't the only one, were interested in what alternative medicines could be used in a hospital setting. So they wanted to get practitioners in. I had no business being there. I'm just I was a musician who turned into an NLP guy, studied hypnosis. But, you know, they wanted to get practitioners in who did these things. Um, to see what worked in a hospital setting. So it was complementary care, later became integrative medicine. Um, they had everything at the beginning. They had massage, they had Qigong, they had, you know, you name it, it was there um, pretty much. But the two things that lasted, two things that were there at the bitter end when they were no longer studying things, but they were just offering them to patients were massage and hypnosis. Those are the two things that that actually stood the test of time because we got people to feel better, have better results, leave the hospital quicker. You know, it worked. It actually worked. Not that they didn't get medicine too. They got the medicine, they got the surgery, they got all those things, but they had a positive attitude about those things and it got them out of the hospital faster with better results. That's so beautiful. And it's, I'm so glad that you shared that here and now with me, because I mean, that's really wonderful. You know, I think that my work and I know your work is more about waking people up to possibilities than actually trying to get them into a trance. I mean, that's, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, you, know, yeah. do we, you know, can everybody be hypnotized to go, you mean what again? I mean, you're, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As Dobson used to say, it's not about hypnosis. It's about dehypnosis. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and the idea being that, you know, from the time that we're born, we're, we're literally in, you know, different brainwave patterns and Delta for the first couple of years and say that, you know, we're absorbing like as if we were hypnotized, all the stuff around us. Mm. So that's, you know, Aristotle said, show me the seven-year-old child and I'll, I'll show you the adult, you know, and today most personality theory said, well, your personality is set by the time you're seven. Mm. Why? Because we've neural wired in these habits, mental thought habits, feeling habits, behavior patterns, speech patterns that we learned while in this, you know, young stage. And now the question is, is, or what I attempt to do, I know what you attempt to do is help people recondition and retrain themselves. And there's no shortage going back to experience. You can't do it without the experience of doing it. You, know, you actually have to do it. So whether you use hypnosis to do it or NLP to do it or meditation to do it or some other approach, the idea is to help people to awaken to the infinite possibilities and resourcefulness and, and uh, possibilities and opportunities and resourcefulness within them that's already there, but, but so often hidden, you know, they just yeah, don't yeah. see it because of the conditioning. And, uh, and so that's beautiful. I had a, a Swami friend from the, from the ranch, from Rajneesh, who was a hypnotist. He, he lived in, in New Orleans and he very, very successful in, in, he was in a, in a uh, psychological group or therapy group. I don't remember, you know, me practicing there and in a hospital. And they would, they, he was getting incredible results because of his ability to hypnotize and, and he had learned NLP. And at some point, the facility found out he was using hypnosis. They didn't, they didn't know much about NLP, so they know what it was, but you're using hypnosis, so you're gone. And they fired him. 
Hmm. So he left the facility. But guess who they called in to consult? They called him in. And he went to another. I mean, it was just the most amazing thing. They couldn't officially have him there because he was doing, you know, something, you know, that not proven yeah. or whatever. But they could yeah. call him in to consult and do all these other things. And so he did that. Yeah. For like, and then he went back. You know, in, in fairness, that was probably true in, in the hospital I work in as well. We didn't call what I did hypnosis. Right. We called it, you know, guided imagery and, and things like that, mindfulness practice or whatever. Well, and interestingly enough, back in the 80s and maybe in the 90s, there was a woman, I won't mention her name, but a politician who who wanted to outlaw all closed eye practices in school for kids. So guided imagery, but mindfulness wasn't a term back then, you know, mindfulness, mm -hmm. a brand more right. than anything. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's attributed to someone as opposed to meditation or Zen. It's been around forever. Um, but there, there wasn't that closed eyes, you know, and it, it, it created that issue of, well, if you asked a, a child, you know, uh, what's your address? And they went and accessed it, that they were somehow doing something wrong. It was of the devil, you know, to, to use uh -huh. their imagination. Yeah, it was spooky time. It was back during around the, in the early 80s or late 80s. It was during the Reagan administration. This came to the forefront. Well, thank thank God we're enlightened now that all that <laughs> you would hope. Oh, in the 70s, 80s, I worked with Pat Collins, the hip hypnotist in the early 80s, too, and uh, and helped teach her self-hypnosis classes. And and um, at that time, in the 70s and 80s, in California, in the hospitals, they often had signs that would say, be careful, your patients can hear you while under anesthesia. Hmm. Yeah. Mind the doctors. And I write about a, a circumstance where I confront doctors in my book you know, going, hey, your patient can hear you. You think you should be, you know, all that talking about how what a shitty condition he's in when he can hear you. You know, what makes you think you can hear me? And I had set up uh, finger signals with him while he was in a coma. Wow. And, and they were like, and when they, when they, when this will prove it. And I was like, okay, I hope this works. Well, <laughs> they did. They were like, oh my God. And they then treated me as if I were a God. And mm. I guess, don't tell me what you're going to do for the guy. Tell his family. I'm, I'm yeah. just, I'm just here. No, it's I mean, true. They had their, they had their model shattered for a moment at least. No, it's interesting. Dr. Oz is actually a fairly cool guy. At least he was. Um, he said that he was once in surgery um, doing heart surgery. The guy is totally anesthetized, and I've seen him totally anesthetized people. It's like, right. is that a corpse? You know, they, they're just motionless, not moving, barely breathing. And this, this guy was out, you know, he's open heart surgery happening, but he was bleeding too much. And so Oz said, so I leaned over and said, Bob, you can stop that bleeding now. Go ahead and stop that bleeding now, Bob. And he did. And so he, they, we, during this period of time that I was there, we set up a, a, a study where we would have, you know, with headphones during surgery, they'd give them word pairings. So instead of like, you know, the opposite, you know, black, white, we'd have black, brown. And then we'd repeat that a bunch of times on the tape during, during surgery. So these people would go, and then we'd give them a test afterwards. So just have, out of curiosity, just do this little word pairing test. They didn't have a clue what it was about. We didn't tell them we were going to be doing what we did. Um, they signed up for a study, but they didn't know specifically what the study was. Um, and so it was amazing to see how many times people would, you know, what's, what's, if, when you think of the word black, what do you think of most people, if they hadn't gone through this would be, you know, black, white, right. you know, whatever. And it's amazing that it wasn't like everybody, but a much higher number than you'd expect were, were giving the word pairings that we had under the tape. Uh, I'll share a, a study that, that 
uh, Selma Moss. I worked with her for a long time. She wrote the Body Electric. She was a oh yeah yeah yeah. I remember that. Like she oh I loved her. She spent years with her. Um, but let me first tell you a story. I still have the scar. Before I got married, I was in my fiance prior to even being in fiance's apartment and doing dishes, and she didn't have a dishwasher, so I was washing in the sink, and I a, a, a bowl of broke something, and it severed between my fingers, and right. it was big, big cracked open like that, and it was pouring blood. And I didn't know it. And I pulled my hand out and went, stop. And it did. And the weird part about it is we got to the hospital to stitch. And the doctor is like, how do you, how did you stop it? She goes, he yelled at it. <laughs> he yelled stop and it stopped. And the guy's like, really? Uh, more blown away. I mean, I was blown away too, but she was blown away. But I was like, stop. Wow, so you invented hypnosis and NLP. That's amazing. No, I didn't invent. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so much of this stuff is, is available to us, and that's the stuff that we just don't know. You know, I mean, it's, it's always yeah. been here. You know, if it's eternally present, it's never been a moment that it hasn't been there. It just that's kind of true. unfolds or manifests in different ways. And, you know, mystics from long ago were doing all these things. They might not have had the same language that they did. Or right. you know, once we got televisions and radios, we could talk about some modalities differently than the experience. But you go back, you can find people saying, make it big and bright, and you know, all these kinds of things. But they didn't have the same kind of, you know, uh, vernacular or, you know, I mean, they understood what it was doing. They just didn't have the, you know, all the, yeah. here's, the, here's the, the, the list that you can draw from. Um, you know, so... Yeah. Yeah. I remember people, you know, talking about distance, for example, like pull it close or move it far away. I remember it big and bright and colorful and step into it, you know, all this kind of stuff and feel these things and really feel like, you know, I always tell people one of the most important things you can learn to do is learn to visualize and feel at the same time. So imagine doing chin-ups. And when you do a chin-up, imagine your fingers wrapping around, the, you know, or climbing the ladder, or, you know, doing something oh, yeah. that but you feel that, you know, and if you can feel your fingers wrapping around the pole, then imagine what it takes to pull yourself up if you've ever done that. So they actually feel it sure. in your muscles because a lot of people just go, okay, I got it. But that's not it. You actually have to imagine yeah. going through the, the thing so that you feel it. That's when, you know, it's, it's I mean, I'm not going to say that it's more powerful, but that's when it, it seems that it helps people to unlock a lot of stuff because now they, they have a, a feeling or kinesthetic or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Sure aspect to it that they otherwise they, you know it's just this airy fairy kind of image in their head yeah, yeah. which is uh, akin to what erickson was doing when he learned to walk again after his, yes. his, his polio hey rex i'm i'm realizing we're we're just about out of time well this is like we're just getting started here this has been a treat and you have done so many incredible things that i'm so glad to call you a friend and and to and to hear experiences that i hadn't heard before uh, i know things that you've done and accomplished would you be willing to come back and do this again sometime? Because really, I feel like we have just scratched the surface of what you have. Any, absolutely any time. This has been this has been a wonderful, beautiful time for me. So I thank you. for. Right. I'm honored to be here and privileged. Thank you. Hey, in the meantime, if people want to get hold of you, how do they how do they do that? Because I know you do a lot of coaching and work with people. So I do a lot of online stuff. I'm currently teaching an NL, uh, Napoleon Hill program. I'm starting another one, the principles of Napoleon Hill and thinking grow rich and and that sort of thing. And I do, you know, I've got the ultimate NLP home study course online and how to get people to do what you want and mind design and other things. Um, they just go to Rex Sykes, R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S, -E -E my name, RexSykes.com. And, uh, and they, they can, they get a free gift when they get there. And I have a newsletter there as well. And uh, my book, if they get my book, I give away a free training. They get the book, they, they go to Amazon, they bring back their receipt code and they get a $497 training on the mastery loop, which is mastering 
your thoughts, your feelings, your speech, your behaviors, and to to maximize and increase the kind of results that you get. And just you know, as a little plug for you, um, you'd make great products because the first time I ever heard of you, Rex, is I got a a, a tape set uh, from the idea seminars that you did about um, publics or you know, public presentations and stuff. Uh, Mike Michael Halbfish had turned me on to it. So. And was it when it, was it a true tape set? I mean, because yeah. we put a, a big no, it was, it was like like I don't know. Oh, like oh, it was the big sets, yeah. Twenty four sets, twenty four tapes, or something. Oh, like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we was that was that the ultimate NLP home study course, or I don't, I don't remember. Could we put out training sets and master practitioner sets and everything? I thought know? it was on, I thought it was trainers training, like how to do presentations. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good stuff. I love doing that. That's training people to present. Yeah, it's, a, it's just to make an application of all this stuff. And I love doing that. It's, it's yeah. great to see people excel. Yeah. All right. We're going to sign off. Thank you so much for being here. Really, really, really appreciate it. Really fun. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Okay. This has been the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure seeing you again. Hope to see you again real soon. Come back next week when we have another gripping and exciting episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. And if you want to, you can find out more about us, each and every one of us, at EssentialCoachingSkills.com. Thanks.